Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. I am your host, Pastor Brian, and I thank you for joining me today as we begin our series on John 3. Today is the first part of potentially a three-part series. We'll see how it goes uh, from here to then. But this will be the first part of our series starting here today. So once again, thank you guys for joining me. Um, I had some really great feedback on my first episode, and I'm so excited to see you guys uh, or not really see you, but I guess I guess hear from you guys. I would love to see if I if I could, but um, I would love to hear from you all uh, some more about feedback from episode number one, and hopefully you'll give me some feedback about this episode as well. I'm very excited to share this with you guys today. Um, I've done a lot of studying into it, and I hope you guys enjoy. So uh, without further ado, so we're going to be starting here in John chapter three. I'm going to give you a second to turn there if you would like to, or you can pause the video. Um, either way is fine with me. But John chapter 3, and beginning with verse number 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so, you know, one of the first questions that comes up are, like, who is the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisaeos, that's a Greek word for the Jewish sect, and the Hebrew word that the Pharisees would have called themselves, because they wouldn't have called themselves Pharisees at the time, they would have called themselves Parash, which means separated or distinct. And that's who they were. They had an emphasis on outward expressions of how separate that they were, um, especially outward expressions of piety and public shows of holiness in every chance that they got. Um, and so some stuff like prayers and almsgiving and uh, chastising those who broke the law, that was kind of what they were known for. And they were separated from everyone else because of that. In a good way for them, but sometimes not such a good way. As if you um, could see in Luke chapter number 18, if you would like to turn there at some point. Um, not not today, obviously, because we're in John chapter 3. But if you would like to, um, after this podcast is over, you can go read the parable that Jesus has about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And some of you might have heard that before, um, quite possibly. But it is a great great example of the way the Pharisees looked at things, if you would like to go read that. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, so this guy that we're encountering here in verse number one, he's part of that. And if you go forward a few chapters in John chapter seven, it's kind of implied that he's also a part of the Sanhedrin as well. So the Pharisees were a really big group. Somewhere around 6,000 people uh, were Pharisees at the time, according to Josephus, a historian from the era but only 70 got to serve on the Sanhedrin. And you could kind of consider them to be the Jewish Supreme Court, in a way. They handled matters that pertain to their laws and their ceremonies and their traditions. And did so with limited authority from the Roman government um, that was over them at the time with Pontius Pilate. But they still had a, lo a lot of power in the eyes of the people and in their own eyes, I guess. So you can kind of take from that that Nicodemus not only was a Pharisee, but more than likely he was part of that Sanhedrin as well. So this is a very, very important guy. And he is from Galilee. And so more than likely, he's heard about Jesus before. Quite possibly he's heard Jesus teach already in public at this point. And so he's coming to Jesus knowing a little bit at least about who he is. But it says, I mean, it says in verse number three, Nicod or not verse three, verse one of chapter three, that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. So he's coming to Jesus, and he's a ruler of the Jews. 
And we get to verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus at night. Now, why at night? That's a question that seemingly has a pretty easy answer, I guess, just kind of sitting on the surface there. But I would like to propose two to you today um, from some of the studies that I did preparing for this podcast. The first one would be Nicodemus didn't want to be seen. That's the one that's kind of on the nose, I guess, and that people could look at and say, yeah, that's, that's pretty understandable as to why he wouldn't want to be seen. So Jesus is in Jerusalem still. He's there for the Passover, and Nicodemus, that's why he's there as well. They're both there to celebrate. So Jesus, if you go back to chapter number two, had a little bit of an incident in the temple where he turned over some money changers' tables and made some people very upset, not just because of that, but because of his comments about the temple, which he was really talking about himself. But they took it as him saying that, that we're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They're like, hey, it's been over 40 years that it took us to build this thing. How, how does this guy think that he's going to rebuild it in three days? But, so the Pharisees aren't, aren't really big fans of Jesus anyway. And so for Nicodemus to be a member of that group and to want to go see Jesus and not only to go, like, not want to just, like, not just want to go see him, but actually go see Nicodemus, it's pretty crazy for lack of a better word. And so Nicodemus chooses to come at night so that he's not seen. Because if anybody had seen, not just the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, but also just regular people had seen this ruler of the Jews, this teacher, this man of the Pharisees, going to see this guy that had caused such a ruckus in the temple the day before, it would cause the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin to lose credibility with some and cause Jesus to gain credibility with others, because they'd say, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's going to see this Jesus character. Maybe there's something more about him. And so Nicodemus is genuinely curious about all of um, Jesus' teachings, and he wants to learn more. And so he's showing up, and but he's doing so in a way that protects himself as well. And about the second option that I wanted to give you guys, that I discovered upon my studies, was by a Scottish theologian from the 20th century named William Barclay, and I don't quite agree with all of his theology, um, as I just kind of did a brief look into him, but he does propose a pretty interesting thing here, albeit he doesn't give any actual substance behind it that I could find about resources where he found it, or passages, or teachings that he had uncovered that mention this, but he casually mentioned in his commentary over John chapter 3 that it was a tradition of the rabbis to want to study at nighttime because they were free of distractions because days can get really crazy and really hectic very quickly with all the things that go into a day and so the pharisees actually believed that they could study at night and kind of get away from that and kind of get away from all of the hustle and bustle of each and every day and so he proposes that as part of the reason why that Jesus is visited by Nicodemus at nighttime rather than Nicodemus coming to him in the day because they both would have been quite busy people with Jesus and his growing following and people wanting to see his miracles and hear his teachings and the Nicodemus being, you know, a teacher of the law and somebody that everybody looked up to, a ruler of the Jews, and especially if he's part of the Sanhedrin. I mean, I'm sure that they're having a lot of opportunities to exact what little authority that they have at the time. And so less distractions and better focus are two of the biggest things that could come from studying at night. And 
I, I guess I could understand the merits of that argument and could see where they could get that or where um, Barclay could get that from. But once again, I propose to you, he didn't give any actual resources or teachings from rabbis as to that actually being mentioned. So that could just be on my part of me not being able to dig deep enough into some of the things that he might have access to that I don't. Some like maybe early rabbinical teachings or something that I'm just kind of missing. But just on the surface level, I didn't see anything there. And my Google searches into the topic didn't really yield very much either. But continuing on here, whatever the reason is, Nicodemus is here at night and it's on purpose. So don't lose that part. And continuing on, it says, and, it said to, and he said to him, Rabbi. So in the Jewish tradition, Rabbi means honorable sir or teacher. By addressing Jesus this way, He's giving him quite a bit of respect and honor as a respected teacher of the law. So it's really interesting that that's how he decides to address Jesus. So just using the word rabbi there is very, very cool. And he continues on. He says, Rabbi, we know. Who knows? Who's we? So the actual Greek there um, says, I do, or it is well known and acknowledged. But once again, who is that we? that it is well known and acknowledged too about this truth that he's about to share about Jesus having come from God. It says and that you have come from God as a teacher. Who is that we? Obviously, I mean, it seems to be some of the Pharisees because no doubt they've had a chance to talk about Jesus and all of his teachings and things. And so they've probably sat down with each other and thought, you know, if you look at what he's saying and what he's doing, there's no way that he could do this unless God is with him. And that's exactly what Nicodemus mentions there. He says that for no one can do these things or do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so what the, what is well known about him? It's that he is a teacher from God. And how they know this? Just like I said, that he's done all these great miracles and these great things and teachings. And there's just no other thing, no other way to take that other than that he is from God. And I want you to keep that in mind, that they apparently know this quite deeply, apparently, according to Nicodemus, for when we get down to verses 11 and 12. So verse 3 says, Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that truly, truly right there, that is right there just smack dab in the middle of the verse, if some of you might see it says verily, verily I say unto you, say unto thee, but if you translate either one of them, truly, truly, or verily, verily, into Greek or Hebrew, it means Amen, Amen. And when something starts with this, when someone starts a teaching, that means whatever is about to fall, like follow through and fall after this, is going to be completely and totally true and sure. When somebody ends a teaching with this. It implies that the previous statement or statements that have been talked about already will remain true, or so be it. I've heard amen mentioned that way before, is that it means so be it or let it be. And so when it starts with it, it says this is true, and then when it ends it says let it continue to be so. So he says, truly I tell you, if a man is not born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we get down to verse 4. Nicodemus poses a very interesting question. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? So Nicodemus and the readers of John's gospel, I want you guys to think about this for a second. Um, knowing history and knowing uh, what we do know about that era and about some of the teachings that were going on, not just amongst the Jews but amongst others, Nicodemus and the people that were reading John's gospel here would have been very familiar with the idea of rebirth. Because in Judaism, it was believed that once a Gentile was circumcised, baptized ritually in a mikveh, and committed to the following of the Torah, that they would become a new creation or be born again. And this is a crazy example, but there were some rabbis at the time that even theorized the possibility of someone marrying close family members that were forbidden under the law, but it was because they had become such a new person, that they weren't the same as they were before when they were still a Gentile. And so, theoretically, they're not related to that person anymore because they're not the person that they, they were related to. So they saw this as a actual just rebirth into something different. And the Romans and Greeks and Egyptians also had something similar to this as well. They believed in death and rebirth and the seasons and had festivals that celebrated it. And even had stories about gods and goddesses dying and being reborn, such as Dionysus in Greek mythology and then Osiris in Egyptian mythology. So the people that are reading John's gospel and reading this interaction with Nicodemus and Nicodemus himself would have been very, very familiar with this idea of rebirth. And so why in the world does Nicodemus ask this question? Seems kind of silly, really, that somebody that would be familiar with this idea is taking it completely literally and physically speaking. Well, according to some of my studies that I did, that was actually a very traditional thing for rabbis to do, is that when they heard somebody do a teaching, whether it be another rabbi or somebody that they weren't familiar with originally, that when they would hear that teaching, they would decide to rule out the most obvious or outlandish, I guess, answer first. Like, they're, they're wanting to make sure that they're speaking with a metaphor and with symbolism or with a parable instead of actually sharing something as, as it's true with the way that they word it to start with. So he's not asking this question out of ignorance, but out of the rabbinical tradition there of eliminating the most prob improbable answer. He knows a physical rebirth is impossible. I mean, of course it is. But is seeking out Jesus' meaning in the passage. Verse 5, he says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you. So once again, he starts off with that, Amen, Amen. So, so he's once again bringing that same idea in again. He says, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Going back to what we saw in verse 4 there with the explanation about Jewish ideas of rebirth, the Gentiles that could convert to Judaism, they, they could do that if they followed the mikvah or a ritual cleansing that, you know, we would equate today to modern like baptism by immersion. And the mikvah by, its, by itself was more of just a ritualistic cleansing. People would do that for other cleansing purposes like the Jews would. But when it was done in the context of a Gentile coming into this belief, they would be raised up or reborn into the new life when they come up out of the water as a proselyte Jew, as somebody that wasn't born into the Jewish family, but has become a part of it through the ceremony and ritual. This was something that had been added to Gentile conversion later on, like especially in the centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New and so that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus. And when he thought of rebirth, and when he thought of somebody becoming a part of the kingdom of God, of course he's going to think about somebody converting to Judaism, because they were God's chosen people. 
And so that's immediately where his brain is going to go. And so Jesus immediately just hits that one right on the right on the nose immediately as soon as he brings it up. Because Nicodemus is asking this question and Jesus knows why he's asking the question. Not because Nicodemus doesn't understand about rebirth, but because Nicodemus is leading Jesus into explaining something further. So Jesus is going ahead and skipping ahead of him and saying, hold on a second, I know exactly what you're thinking. Truly, truly, I tell you that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and of the Spirit. And this idea, this ritual cleansing thing um, that people would do to prepare their their hearts and their minds towards heavenly things, that's, that's actually what John was doing out in the wilderness when he was preaching about the coming kingdom of God and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. That's why they were doing that. That was part of that ceremony of preparing yourself um, for the Messiah. And the idea of this being part of Gentile conversions was, um, like I mentioned, a rabbinical addition in the centuries before Christ. And so this physical purification, this outward expression of righteousness, that is not enough to enter into the kingdom of God. So this flies in the face of everything that the Pharisees were doing, where they would go out and do their prayers and almsgiving and everything to where they could be seen of men and where they could show off their righteousness to people. And no better way to show off your righteousness than to go through that purification ritual, not just on the Gentile side, but also on the normal, um, normal Jews that would do it. And they saw it as being an important part of their faith. But Jesus tells them, no, no, you can't just have a physical purification and be okay and be able to enter into the kingdom of God. It has to be a spiritual change as well. Verse number six, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Things that come from the flesh are flesh. They are physical, outward things. And things that come from the spirit, they are spirit. The change by God through the spirit comes from him and impacts the part of man that is eternal. The things that you do to your flesh are temporal things. Eventually, you're going to have to take a bath again. Eventually, you're going to have to eat again. Eventually, you're going to have to drink water again. But when you have that change within you, when you have that change within your spirit, that is something that is unchanging because it is held onto by an unchanging God. And according to Joseph Benson, another uh, commentarian, I guess, a theologian, um, his commentary on John 3 says, Even if someone was physically born again, it would do no more good than the first birth as the underlying problem, someone's spiritual state, would not be addressed through it. So even if the answer was a physical version of rebirth, it still would not be enough, because you would still be born into the same sinful state that you were in originally. And you need a spiritual rebirth in order to enter God's kingdom, and that only comes through the Spirit, not through water, not through what they considered to be these outward righteous expressions, but through an inward change that only the Spirit can do. And Jesus says to him in verse 7, something really cool. He says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus already knows about this idea of rebirth. He already knows that that's something that's necessary anyway. But Nicodemus is missing the point. Verse 8 continues, he says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So the word that's actually used there for wind is the word pneuma. And if you remember last week, that was the word that was used for 
spirit or someone's spiritual condition as well. And in Greek, they are the same word. It's just dependent on the context that you use it in as to what you're talking about. And they are both very similar things, the wind and the Holy Spirit are. Because the wind goes where it is sent by God, so does the Spirit. You hear the wind and you see its power, and God speaks through His Spirit, and, he, and the Spirit itself testifies, or His self testifies, to God's majesty. And both the wind and the Spirit are invisible to our physical eyes. But we can see the effects that they leave behind. Those born of the Spirit are the same, and they know God is leading them. They know God is guiding them, just like He does with the wind. And so... Continuing down to verse 9, Nicodemus is just completely dumbfounded by all of this. He says, Nicodemus responded and said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus has now become a student rather than a fellow teacher. Because when he first addresses Jesus, he does address him with respect. But as soon as Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus starts, Nicodemus goes to the tactics that he knew. And that was to speak to him as if he is learning from another rabbi or another teacher as a teacher himself. But now, he has completely abandoned that part, and he is a student at this moment. He's confused, because he knows what Jesus is saying is true, but it is not aligned with what he has known and taught for years. Jesus is making sense. And yet, Nicodemus is still confused. Because he knows what Jesus is saying is lining up with everything that he has learned. But... It doesn't fit into the lifestyle that he's living at the time and the way the Pharisees act. He knew Gentiles needed to be reborn to become Jews, but why does everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, have to be spiritually reborn to see God's kingdom? Because what he is used to is that Gentiles can become Jews, and that's a good thing, and they are good to go at that point. But what Jesus is saying is both Jews and Gentiles need to be a new creation. They need to change what they used to be, and then they will be good at that point. How can this be possible? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus knows of Nicodemus' shift from thinking himself an equal to Christ to becoming a student beneath Jesus' authority and teaching. And so he asks him this question. He says, Aren't you a teacher of Israel? And so that implication there about teacher of Israel is somebody that knows about the Jewish religion and shares it with other people and knows it like inside and out. Nicodemus would have studied the Tanakh or the Old Testament for years. And as a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin even, he would have been well respected for his wisdom. And yet he does not know. The seeming nobody from Galilee, this backwoods preacher, this somebody that does not have any formal education in the law, has dumbfounded someone that should know that law inside and out. And so, and yet he does not know. And you can even look back in the Old Testament and see these moments where rebirth and new life and a new heart and new creation are mentioned. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 36, 27, 600 years before Jesus was around, God promised that he would place his spirit within his people so that they could walk in accordance of his law, which implies that they can't do it on their own with the heart that they have now and with the condition that they are in at that moment. And so God promises that he would send his spirit to dwell within his people to where they could follow his statutes and his ordinances. And then in Psalms 143.10, David prays for guidance from God's spirit. 
And going back to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, there was a call for Israel to repent and receive a new heart and a new spirit. And so Nicodemus should not be shocked at this. He should not be surprised. He should have known this. Hence why Jesus has responded to him in the way that he has. And once again, he brings that up. Truly, truly, I say to you in verse 11. So another ultimate truth. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. We, those that are led by the Spirit, we speak what we know so we understand what we are talking about and how important that it is. You don't understand your own teachings. We testify what we have seen. We have witnessed what we talk about. You have also seen Nicodemus, you and the Pharisees, and have not believed. So you people that are mentioned there, that's the Pharisees themselves, Nicodemus included. They don't know what they're talking about, and they've rejected wholeheartedly what they should know to be true. And you know what they said that they thought was true. Because Nicodemus, back in the early portion there of this passage that we read, mentioned that exact same thing. He said, we, we know it for a fact that you have to have come from God. And yet, they don't believe what he's saying. They don't trust in him. And so, that's, the, that's one of the greatest mysteries in the Bible. And it's something where God shows his majesty and his power is that common people more quickly believed than those who had so much knowledge that they should have welcomed him with open arms. And that's the great just story of the gospel there. One of the great stories, one of the great storylines, I guess, of, of the gospels themselves is that these common fishermen, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and then the others that were included, they end up believing on Jesus wholeheartedly. And yet they, they knew little of the law. And yet those that had spent their entire lives dedicated to it and dedicated to following it to the letter in public, they didn't accept him. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you have so much trouble believing what you can see, how and why would he share heavenly things with him? So we're left with this profound question. Nicodemus claimed to know what Jesus was sent, or that Jesus was sent and supported by God. Yet he doesn't believe what Jesus says to be true. And so that's a contradiction within Nicodemus' own mind and in his heart, is that he knows who Jesus is. He can see through the things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus has done that there is no other way that Jesus could share and do those things aside from God. God is the only way that he can do that. And yet he says that he knows that to be a fact and that is well acknowledged among some of even his own peers. But they think that to be true, but they don't act like they actually believe it. He claimed to know that Jesus was sent and supported by God, yet he doesn't believe what Jesus says to be true. And you know, the Pharisees could not deny Jesus' divine calling. They could see it in everything that, they, that he did. Yet they wholeheartedly rejected his teachings. Because they didn't want it to be true. Yes, they were looking for the Messiah. But they didn't want it to be him. They wanted it to be somebody that was like them that was smart and intelligent and had spent years studying the law and had all these outward showings of 
piety to everyone they came in contact with. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus just was and is perfect in everything that he did. Not for a show, but in order for God to be glorified. And so we'll pick up with verse 13 next week. I thank you guys for joining me here today. God, as we come before you here today, we're just so blessed and humbled and grateful for the day you've given us. And God, this time you've allowed us to spend together here in your word. And God, I pray that you would give us the ability and the knowledge and the wisdom to learn from you and to study your word and to listen to your spirit and be guided by it. I pray that you would give us humility of heart and of mind that we can learn from you because sometimes we think we know more than we actually do. And I pray, God, that you would help us be humble about our own mental shortcomings. And I pray, Father, that you would just go with each person that has listened to this podcast and bless this time that we've spent together. And God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys again, and I'll see you next week.